Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Tim Lynch, and I'm the director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. Today, we want to return to drug policy. We are going to be debating the question of what to do about the heroin problem. This has been a subject that's been in the news uh, for the past few months. Uh, the Obama administration recently announced a proposal to spend $1 billion on uh, expanding treatment options available for people who are suffering from uh, heroin addiction. Before I introduce our guest speakers, I want to take just a minute or two to lay something of a foundation for uh, today's debate. But before I do that, let me ask those of you who came with cell phones if you just take a moment now to quickly double check and make sure that they are silenced uh, as a courtesy to our speakers. Yes. Thank you. There seems to be growing, uh, a growing consensus and widespread agreement across the political spectrum that there is a heroin problem. Uh, it's been growing for several years. Uh, we were speaking in the green room just before we came up. Uh, according to the Center for Disease Control, there were about 10,000 overdose deaths in uh, 2014, the latest uh, data we have available. One of the questions that we'd like to see addressed is why is this happening now? Uh, heroin has been around for a very long time. Uh, some say that there's a relationship with uh, legal prescription painkillers, that if patients are unable to get the pain meds that they need or that they just want, uh, uh, and they're unable to get it, they're just going to go out on the street and purchase heroin uh, uh, on the black market uh, as a substitute. Others say that the connection between painkillers or opioids has been overblown. The second question is, however we got here, uh, what should policymakers do about the problem? Some are calling for a strong military and police attack on the supply of heroin. Right now, heroin production is in Mexico, operated by the powerful cartels there. Uh, in a speech this week in Rhode Island, I saw uh, Donald Trump uh, say that as he campaigned through New Hampshire, people kept telling him that heroin was a big problem there. And he was telling his supporters that the wall he wants to build is going to help them uh, by keeping heroin out of the country. Now, other countries are rejecting the military and police uh, approach. Portugal, for example, had a heroin problem in the late 1990s, and they decided that they would decriminalize all drugs, including heroin. They did that in 2001. And one of the reasons that they decided on that policy is because when people became addicted, they were afraid to come forward and have their problem addressed by health officials because they were afraid of getting arrested, getting a criminal record. Uh, losing their job or making it more difficult for them to find work uh, with a criminal record. So policymakers removed the stigma of a criminal record and they shifted resources from the law enforcement over to health care and treatment. So for purposes of a quick overview and a quick sketch uh, of the subject, you know, there's basically a law enforcement approach and then there's a health-based approach outside of the criminal law model. With that background in mind, let's uh, turn to our experts and see what they have to say and what their policy recommendations will be. Our first speaker is going to be my Cato colleague, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Myron. Jeff is the Director of Economic Studies here at Cato. Uh, he also serves 
as the Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Department of Economics at Harvard. Jeff is well qualified to address today's topic. He earned a, his PhD at, at MIT, and he's been researching, writing, and speaking on drug policy for more than 20 years. He's authored dozens of papers and columns and wrote an excellent book called Drug War Crimes, The Consequences of Prohibition. Would you please give a warm welcome to Dr. Jeffrey Myron. Our second speaker today will be Dr. David Murray, who is now a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. Before joining Hudson, Dr. Murray served for 13 years in both the Bush and Obama administrations in the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. That office is more uh, widely recognized as the Office of the Drug Czar. Before he came to Washington in 2001, Dr. Murray held uh, several teaching positions at Brown and Brandeis Universities. He earned his PhD at the University of Chicago. Would you please welcome Dr. David Murray? Okay, our format is pretty straightforward. Each speaker is going to go for about 15 minutes with an initial presentation. After that, we're going to have a very brief second round of about five minutes so that each speaker will have a chance to respond to what the other person has said. We will then open it up and take your questions for a few minutes before we adjourn. Dr. Myron, the floor is yours. What should policymakers do about the heroin problem? Thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, thank you all for coming, and thanks to David Murray for agreeing to uh, debate this with me today. So to say what we should do about the heroin problem, we of course need to define what we mean about the heroin problem. What exactly is the problem that we're trying to fix? I want to characterize first what I would call the conventional view about what that problem is as follows. It says that access to heroin is too easy, despite the fact that heroin is prohibited, that this access allows people to consume heroin in the black market. They overdose and suffer other negatives from that use. And under that view, the right response to the heroin problem seems naturally to be more prohibition, more attempts to suppress access to heroin, therefore try to reduce use and the negative things that sometimes accompany use. Relatedly, Tim didn't talk about this uh, as quite as much in his introduction, but there's a parallel, even a precursor opioid problem, prescription opioid problem in the US, which holds that access to prescription opioids has become too easy, that they're being prescribed too often, that that generates overdoses from prescription uh, opioid use, related negatives, and the right response to that problem, that related problem, is we need tighter rules on prescribing so that people have less access uh, to prescription opioids. And many states uh, are considering or have adopted various changes in their prescribing rules uh, in an attempt to move in that direction. So I'm actually going to advocate for an alternative view. My alternative view says, in essence, the heroin problem is that heroin is illegal and that most of the things we consider problems related to heroin result from the fact that it is illegal, not from things about heroin per se. Relatedly, we have an opioid problem. We have negative consequences associated with opioid use because they are too tightly controlled, because people don't have sufficient access to opioids. Okay? And my claim will be that if all of these substances, both the prescription opioids and the currently uh, outlawed opioids like heroin, were fully legal, then we would have far fewer overdoses and accidental deaths, other adverse impacts that sometimes occur uh, from heroin and opioid use, 
we would, of course, avoid all the ancillary costs of prohibition, such as violent crime, corruption, uh, adverse effects on supplying countries like Colombia or Peru or Afghanistan. And in particular, and perhaps most importantly, opioid users, both current opioid users and potential opioid users, would be far better off in a world in which heroin were fully legal. So the outline of what I'm going to present will first just give you a little background, illustrate some of the facts uh, that Tim was alluding to to set the stage, review what I think is the standard explanation for how we ended up with this opioid epidemic, okay? explain why I think this standard explanation isn't convincing. It's at a minimum incomplete and maybe significantly misguided in its conclusions, and then present this alternative perspective that I think is more consistent uh, with the facts that we have. So just as background, what exactly is the opioid epidemic or the heroin epidemic? It's basically the fact that if you use the standard data from the Centers for Disease Control on causes of death, you will find that over the past 15 years, there's been a dramatic increase in accidental deaths from opioid overdose. That, that uh, rate has boomed, especially over the past 15 years. Initially, that boom seemed to be for prescription opioids, for OxyContin and things like that. Okay. Later on, this boom in the death rate from opioid overdose uh, shifted, to shifted partially to heroin. Okay. And it's a large and persistent increase. It's not just a temporary blip that somehow might be explained away as some statistical anomaly. So this illustrates that very clearly. The top line shows you CDC's data uh, through 2013. I think there's should be data available for yet one more year, but they're not on this slide, that show you the monthly overdose death rate from all opioids, the top line, this very significant and very substantial increase. It goes up by about a factor of four okay, over that 15-year period. And then also the lower line, the lighter blue line, shows you the death rate for um, heroin. And that one is relatively flat. You don't see any obvious trend in that until about 2010, but at that point, the heroin overdose rate starts to increase quite noticeably and goes up by a factor of sort of two and a half or three. So, uh, sorry, more than that, uh, a bit more than that. But um, as you can guess, the fact that the heroin is going up so much while the overall trend rate for the total isn't changing suggests that prescription opioid use deaths plateaued somewhat in those last four years. And that indeed is the case if you look at that data series individually. Okay, so there's been this incredible increase in deaths from opioid use, both prescription and from heroin. Now, the standard explanation sort of has the following flavor. Starting roughly in the mid, maybe the early 1990s, okay, opioid prescribing increased substantially in the United States. And I'll show you data that confirm that in a second. Okay, why did that happen? Why did it happen then? Well, partly a number of medical professionals started making the case that the U.S. in particular was under-prescribing opioids for pain. The view until that point had been using opioids was fine for acute pain, such as if you've broken your leg playing downhill skiing and you need pain while the leg is set. It was also okay for people who were terminally ill, especially cancer patients, where risks of long-term use or risk of addiction were kind of irrelevant. But it wasn't okay to prescribe opioids for long-term pain, at least not generally, for other sorts of conditions, such as someone has chronic back pain and might want opioids for extended periods. So views evolved. Okay? People, doctors became much more accepting of the notion that we should allow long-term prescribing of opioids. Okay? In addition, 
there's an allegation that there was a lot of pressure from some parts of big pharma to convince doctors that long-term prescribing of opioids was okay, that it didn't generate a lot of negative side effects, and that sort of interacted with the evolving views in the medical profession to lead to a general increase in the actual prescribing. Okay? And so the story from the standard explanation is more prescribing generates more deaths, okay? and then at some point, as that more prescribing occurred, some of the people who wanted op uh, prescription opioids were not able to get them, shifted to trying to get heroin from the black market. And so later in the sample, as a result of this overprescribing, this alleged overprescribing, we saw the heroin epidemic occur. So this is just a graph to show you that, indeed, the claim that prescribing increased in the United States seems to be well supported by the facts. Okay, that's more than a doubling of the number of prescriptions okay, over this period of about uh, 22 or three years. Okay, there isn't too much serious dispute that indeed okay, there was this increase in prescribing. Exactly why maybe is, is less clear, but certainly that increase in prescribing occurred, and that seems to make a prima facie case that excess more prescribing led to more deaths. Now I want to challenge that interpretation, what I would call the standard explanations. I'm going to make three main points. First is that overdose deaths from opioids and self-reported measures of opioid use do not correlate very well. There's something puzzling about the fact that when you look at data from standard sources on whether people self-report they used drugs and look at the, de the death rates, they don't line up well. Second, show you some data from Europe that show a very, very different picture and talk about what that might mean and then talk briefly about the fact that many of the deaths that are occurring from opioid, prescription opioid misuse or from heroin use okay, are not happening under medical supervision. They're happening post-prescription or medical supervision. And that's a challenge to at least some interpretations of what's been happening recently. So this first graph shows you from the National Household Survey on Drug Use, okay, the past year and past month uh, use rates okay, for heroin. And you see at the very end, okay, there are some upticks in the percentage of the population that says it used heroin in the past month or the past year. But focusing first on the past month, it doesn't actually go up until 2014. Okay? That's about three years after the death rate from heroines started spiking. So the timing doesn't line up. Okay? It doesn't make sense that use went up after okay, deaths went up if, in fact, the increase in use is what's causing the deaths. The past year use goes up a little sooner, but it still happens after okay, the increase okay, in death rates has started. Okay? And in both cases, the magnitude of those increases, while significant, okay, is not nearly as large as the magnitude of the increase in the overdoses. So there's a bit of a gap between this data series, this measure of heroin use, okay, and the data on deaths. Maybe there's something weird going on between these different data series or some other interpretation other than just use causes more deaths. These are data from Monitoring the Future, which is an annual survey conducted by the University of Michigan uh, of high school seniors. And here we see an even bigger puzzle okay, over the relevant sample from roughly the early 2000s, 1999 or 2000 to the present, where opioid deaths have been, sorry, um, opioid deaths and later in the sample heroin deaths have been going up steadily and substantially. Heroin use is falling. Okay, especially look at the last four or five years, that's exactly when heroin deaths spiked, and yet this self-reported measure of heroin use says heroin use has been going down. Okay? One more graph along the same lines, back to the National Household Survey. 
okay, we see that self-reported use of pain relievers, which is substantially for opioid pain relievers, for non-medical use, okay, if anything is flat or going down over exactly the sample where all of these overdose deaths, okay, have been measured. So that's just puzzling. It could be that the self-reported measures of drug use are just completely wrong, but that requires us to throw out a huge amount of everything we've studied for a long time. It could be there's something problematic about the death rate data, okay, and I actually think there's, there's some possibility of that. Or it could be there's a more subtle relation between use and deaths, and that's what I'm going to get to in a couple minutes. One more piece of evidence. These are death rates from drug overdoses. This is all drugs, not just opioids, because of the way the data are presented, but it's substantially coming from opioids in Europe and the United States. The top line, we've basically seen before, this is the annual version of that uh, monthly uh, graph I had early on. This shows this dramatic increase in deaths from drug overdoses in the US. But in Europe, okay, it shows, if anything, flat, maybe even falling rates of drug overdose deaths. If anything, Europe has a more lax prescription system, makes it easier for people to get medical access, legal access, to opioids. So if more access to opioids causes more deaths, these data are exactly backwards. Okay? So that, again, is a challenge okay, to the conventional view of why we're seeing all these deaths, the simple view that more prescribing, more access leads to more deaths. I think that doesn't fit the facts very well. So here's my alternative perspective. Okay? It starts with the idea that and accepts that increased prescribing through the 90s and 2000s indeed generates more use. I'm not disputing that part of the standard story at all. However, a great many of the patients who did they get access and were prescribed opioids for all sorts of conditions to an increasing extent over the past 20, 25 years were given time-limited access. They weren't given unlimited ability to purchase their prescription opioids for five months, a year, five years, 20 years. They got a three-month supply or three-month prescription or were able to renew their prescriptions for three months or six months, in some cases longer than that. Okay? That means that many of the patients who received all these additional prescriptions, okay, some of them who had ongoing pain relief, were cut off from access to their opioid prescriptions, okay, even though they still thought they might get some benefit from opioids okay, for pain relief. It also means okay, that other people who took opioids under prescription okay, but got physically dependent, in standard lingo, got addicted, okay, and maybe they didn't have any pain anymore, but they still felt that they didn't want to go through withdrawal yet or they didn't want to go through it quickly or for whatever reasons wanted to continue to have access to opioids because of their physical dependence also had an ongoing demand for opioids, but weren't able to get it through the standard medical channels because of standard rules and because of physician uh, practices about uh, prescribing. Okay? So that implied that more and more, as more and more people are being treated for various conditions with opioids, but then at some point being cut off from legal access to opioids, there's increased demand for other sources of opioids, which could be diversion of prescription opioids or could be demand for black market drugs such as heroin. Okay? Now, the second part of my alternative perspective is very simple. It's that in black markets, use of substances is way more dangerous than its use if it were available in the legal market. I think that's true very widely. It would be true of chainsaws, downhill skiing, espresso coffee, et cetera. But it's for sure true okay, of things like drugs and alcohol. Why? Because when you purchase those commodities in a black market, 
they may have been adulterated in ways that wouldn't have happened if you were able to purchase them legally from a pharmacy. When you get them in a black market, it's much harder to know the dosage, so you might accidentally consume something which is 90% pure that you thought was 50 or 10% pure. When you take it not under a doctor's supervision or hide it from your doctor, even worse, you may be also consuming other medications which interact with the opioids and generate overdoses and other bad reactions. The methods of use when you use in a black market, in part because the prices are elevated, tend to be much more dangerous than the methods of use in a legal market. Injecting, sharing dirty needles for heroin is a classic example. Even more sort of aggressively, restrictions on antidotes, which exist because of the current legal status and policy views about opioids, mean that you can't just walk in the drugstore and buy Narcan. You can't buy your opioids okay, from a pharmacy packaged with Narcan okay, so that if you accidentally overdose, you have the antidote right there in the very same package. Okay? Those are all things that would occur in a legal market, and we wouldn't see nearly the amount of dangerous use as we do when people have to access the black market. There are many examples which illustrate this okay, very clearly. Okay? So one example is early in the past century, morphine maintenance was common. Doctors treated heroin addiction by giving people morphine. And the m- 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 evidence on that is that those people functioned. They kept their jobs. They didn't have to access the black market to get their drugs. Okay? And so letting them have more access made them healthier than restricting their access. Methadone maintenance is the modern version of that, starting in the 1960s. The U.S. has been operating methadone clinics, which give an opioid to people who want to not access opioids from the black market. They know what dosage they're taking. They know that it's not something other than it purports to be. It's from a legal source. They're not purchasing it from criminals. And the degree of overdoses and bad outcomes from methadone uh, use under those conditions are far, far better than when people access opioids in the black market. Alcohol prohibition is still another example I'll show you in a second. And the example we saw from Europe, okay, which I'll review again briefly, is still a further example. So let's look at alcohol prohibition. The graph, the blue line, shows you the death rate from cirrhosis of the liver in the U.S. from 1900 to 1950. And it in fact goes down pretty dramatically in the first few years before alcohol prohibition starts in 1920, partially because of the flu pandemic and partially because of World War I. And then it stays at a relatively low level and gradually increases somewhat after Prohibition ends in 1933. The red line, which is deaths from alcohol use, follows the cirrhosis rate as a proxy for alcohol consumption pretty well until alcohol prohibition, and then it soars. Deaths from alcohol use soar relative to other proxies of alcohol use during Prohibition. That is precisely consistent with the view that Um, prohibition, making it hard for people to get access, forcing them to access a substance in a black market, is what leads to excess deaths and dangerous methods of use. The graph for Europe is the same thing. Europe, where there's easier access, it's more uh, allowable to get opioids regularly from a doctor. You don't see nearly as much of a death rate, and you don't see this opioid epidemic. In the U.S., we do. So what are the implications If my view of what's going on is accurate, the key problem is forced withdrawal from opioids, not use of opioids. And the right policy is easier access, specifically legalization. Under legalization, no one is forced into the black market. 
No one is forced to stop using opioids, and therefore you are not going to get the dangerous kinds of use, the negative side effects from use in a black market that we get under the current system. Okay? That's certainly going to improve the well-being of people who want to consume opioids. And of course, legalizing eliminates all the negatives of prohibition, the violence, corruption, and other things that are caused by driving the market underground. Now, I want to emphasize that second to last point just a little bit more. A huge amount of discussion of opioids takes as given that we should be trying to keep people from consuming opioids. My view, that's exactly backwards, or at least we shouldn't be trying to discourage or encourage people either way. People consume opioids for a reason. Okay? If that's true, then prohibition or other restrictions, if they actually reduce use, harm the people who want to consume opioids, who think that they get pain relief or any other kind of satisfaction or benefit from using opioids. So a key alleged benefit of prohibition, reducing opioid use, is actually a cost of prohibition. It's a negative to try to keep people from consuming opioids okay, when they think they might benefit from so doing. More specifically, the fact that more people might be addicted to opioids if opioids were more readily available, if they were legal or at least less restricted, is not the right issue. Addiction, per se, is not something that we should be concerned about, and certainly not something that policy should be concerned about. Billions of people are addicted to caffeine. Nobody worries about that. In the standard definitions, almost everybody is addicted to food. If you don't get food, terrible things happen to you. Many people are addicted to exercise. Many people are addicted to their jobs. They're addicted to their spouses. It's only if regular, significant use of a substance causes some bad side effect, such as lung cancer from tobacco, or cirrhosis from alcohol consumption, that you should be worried about addiction. It's the side effects, not the use per se, or the addiction per se. So that is a reasonable concern for people who are considering long-term use. But indeed, if you check the medical literature, the long-term use from regular administration of opioids, if you have illegal access, if you're not getting adulterated products, if you know what dosage you're getting, are quite modest. The most significant one you'll find, if you look it up, is constipation. Very few people want to be constipated, but it's certainly not dying. It's certainly something that we should let people make a decision about for themselves rather than imposing it by a policy. So I'm about at, about at, just about out of time. Let me summarize. The heroin and the opioid epidemics are indeed cause for concern. Lots of people appear to be dying at a faster rate than was true 15 years ago. Okay? My view is that results from too many restrictions on opioids, not from too few restrictions. Okay? And even if it were true that greater access, that legalization or any kind of liberalization of the current rules had some negative effects, that legalization would, or that uh, removal of restrictions would have positive effects. In particular, opioids help millions of people okay, every day who are in pain and could not do their jobs, could not function, could not simply be pain-free without the existence of those opioids. Whether they are addicted or not, they simply need the opioids to function. So the right policy is to legalize all opioids. That would drastically reduce the deaths and would have a huge number of other significant benefits for the US. Thank you very much. I get a reset on my uh, timer here, or should I just go by my own, my own watch? Oh, thank you. You can hear me. Uh, I'm going to go through the same data set. I'm Dave Murray, by the way. Thank you for having me. I appreciate this. I think uh, some of the conclusions I can uh, sustain and bear with, uh, but there's some 
tricky dimensions to what we've been presented with here that I'd like to review. The same data are available to each of us, and they're critical, but I will go through them very similarly, but I will have a different narrative with regard to this, with regard to what I think we are seeing, and I will focus on drug supply. That I think that that is a critical dimension, because the question is, what is the federal government going to do? And I would argue that if we're going to take action and interventions at the federal level, the most effective and sustained and consequential intervention will be with regard to uh, curtailing the supply. We've already been posited here, I think, something that is as a dichotomy that I don't subscribe to, which was the opening said something about, well, a law enforcement approach then switched, switched to a public health approach in Portugal and elsewhere. This is an incorrect perception of the relationship. It's a dynamic where law enforcement and public health play a sort of uh, mutually augmenting role properly construed through such things as drug courts. The presence of the law actually is an enabler for a public health approach. And a public health approach must be seen as, I believe, an epidemiological approach. Understanding this is a pathogen, a behavioral disease, and the interruption of the vectors and reduction in the pathogen can be critical for curtailing the public health dimension. So it's called prohibition, but not really. That's not really what we're after here. And if we're after the supply, it is not necessarily meaning someone chasing a kid down a back alley or being at the border and arresting people who are driving across with false panels in their car. It means diminishing the prevalence of the pathogen in the system, which I think most effectively can be done from the uh, source country, in particular in terms of return on investment. Uh, so I'm going to look at two episodes prior to the heroin one, which I think are parallel. And I think, in general, I'm going to get to my conclusions first, since I don't know how much time I'll run out of here. Uh, if I'm thinking about someone arguing for a legalized approach of greater access, unrestricted and or with mo modest access, it's usually premised on the notion that what we've been doing is failed and futile, that prohibition has not worked and has made things worse, that the costs and burden to society and public health and arrests and the rest is too great, and that it has been futile. I would say that that is not accurate. It has been quite successful when applied in a sustained fashion and applied intelligently in a staged approach to what works and staying with it. It doesn't work if you turn it off and reverse it. Second premise that I think is wrong is that somehow there will be revenue to the state that will be beneficial if we can tax and regulate, and that somehow this will be good for states like Colorado and so forth. I think that is an illusion that the regulated market for intoxicants will somehow generate revenue that are greater than the public health burden that will be imposed, as well as the law enforcement burden. I think it will exceed whatever value we find. And it is not just the value to the person who uses them because they're, they're pleasant. It's the value to their community, their spouses, their, uh, their neighbors. Uh, they do things to them when they are intoxicated, including criminal acts, including very uh, poor misjudgment acts that are a function of the intoxicated state. Those are also part of the costs. And then third, the notion that there, we can have a legal market or a black market, that they're complementary. No, by no means. All the empirical data clearly show one does not drive out the other. The black market is here, it is embedded, it is entrenched, it protects itself, it uses violence and coercion and corruption, and it will not be removed simply because we set up a shining object called free legal heroin over here. It will be a contest, they will be co-present, and they will beat you. You must beat them. And then perhaps come along with some model of regulated market approach. But it cannot be done in the presence of that black market, because you will amplify that black market 
with the increases in prevalence that will follow from readily available narcotics or intoxicants in general. And if you're a libertarian, and many at Cato are, I would also point out just these two other dimensions. The predicate of a free rational actor that makes choices is not available under the disease of addiction, where a brain disease will drive behavior in ways that are non-rational, and that's a crisis for us. And secondly, whatever the relationship of the citizen to the state is, it is not sustainable, it seems to me, with a moral agency or a citizenship model where the state controls or enables even the market controls access to intoxicants that are addicting, that there is a dependency created thereby. All right, here we go. Let's start with cocaine. This is from Daniel Mejia, an economist at the University of the Andes, who arrayed the data that we know about cocaine and put them in this form. I think it's worthwhile because for those who say things are futile, you can never make a difference. This is Colombian cocaine. Somehow around 2006, some dynamic set in motion, and there was a dramatic change, a threshold, in terms of the supply and availability of cocaine on US streets. It plummeted. They couldn't get it. And when they couldn't get it, they created an instrument which was an increased price and lower purity. And it had a disincentive effect on the use of cocaine. It was difficult to access. And the consequence was very difficult, and cocaine use went down, the prevalence in the country diminished, and what we saw was further consequence that was beneficial for the United States. These are cocaine overdose deaths. We forget about this, but they used to be quite substantial. Almost 8,000 a year was attributable to cocaine in the year 2006. Notice the decline. Quite interesting. We saved lives. Four to 5,000 lives a year were saved by virtue of not having access to available cocaine at a certain rate. That was an achievement. Then notice something worse. On the right-hand side, however, seems to be creeping back up. Where is that coming from? Why are the death rates starting to increase? But we've seen availability decline, supply. Death rates go down. Many consequences in the United States were positive as a virtue of that. And how did we do it? By and large, not by chasing people down black alleys, but by trying to eliminate source country capacity to produce cocaine. The primary market is Colombia for the United States. Here are the actions over the years of aerial eradication and manual eradication, reducing the supply of cocaine from Colombia that was available for US streets. And here's the money slide. From 700 metric tons pure in 2001, it dropped by 2012 to 165 metric tons, the available capacity of Colombia to produce cocaine for US markets. 76% reduction. That is the drug war working. Doesn't mean that it goes away, but it does mean you save lives, you push back, you make the phenomenon smaller, and you allow public health interventions to begin to gain traction in that circumstance. But why is it going south again? Look at that since 2012. It's worsening. What could that be related to? And my, my argument here is, as supply went down, consequences went down, something happened in supply in Colombia, and consequences are going back up. Now we switch to the familiar slide, prescription overdose deaths. This is from prescription opioids. And quite correctly, we see that it's been there for a little while as a growing incremental problem. What interests me is the prescription available supply, which I think was driven by advertising and doctor practice, and it certainly increased the market availability, and perhaps increased the number of people who were available to move into heroin acquisition when that became uh, available to them. But notice how incremental that is, that slide, that curve. It was a progressive standard moving upward with this odd thing at the very end. It looks like it goes down a bit in the last two years, 2012, 2013, and then spikes back up again. How could that possibly be? 
something's wrong in here, and we're not quite sure what. But the incrementalism of it seems to say to me, this is a market phenomenon, not an illegal phenomenon. This is not pirate capitalism that you find in the Weberian category. This is rational market capitalism, where every year the market for prescription drugs, opiates, increased. And we end up with the overdose deaths and the prescription of uh, the tripling of opiate prescriptions do go hand in hand, 16 billion of them in 2014, beginning to decline at the very end. That should have some effect. And here we see the two aspects of an illicit market and an illicit market in conjunction. The top is the past year use of prescription opiates, and the bottom is the heroin. If you want to see the efficacy of interventions, I would point to the gap between them. The heroin past year use is one-tenth the past year use of the prescription opiates. The sheer prevalence of the prescription opiates being 10 times greater is somewhat of a tribute to the fact that heroin was far more tightly constrained as an illicit market and was reduced. And you find a similar phenomenon exactly with regard to alcohol. Take marijuana, about 22 million past month users of marijuana, it's illegal. What is alcohol use? Around 120 million on a regular basis. Part of that differential is a function of one is disincentivized by illegal activity, the other is available. We should anticipate then under a legal market, the public health burden will increase quite substantially if these things become available along the model of prescription opiates or alcohol. If heroin were to be so readily available, we could approach the levels of prevalence. Alcohol is responsible for 87,000 overdose deaths a year. Uh, the opiates and prescription drugs and the rest total about 47,000. And now we get to an interesting phenomenon. Why was that tip up at the very end for the prescription opiates when it should have been going down? Because prescribing dropped and use has been dropping, as Jeffrey pointed out, since 2006, slowly declining. Use has been going down, but at the very end we see the rate of overdose per 100,000 starts to tick back up again. That's very odd. And heroin, of course, is surprisingly flat for a long period of time. Why is it so stable for long periods until basically 2010? It is an outbreak. Epidemiologically, we had a change, a dynamic in the heroin market, that an outbreak occurred. The reason I'm going to argue that we find the 5.9 at the end, the right-hand side, is because almost all the recent deaths that were attributed to pharmaceutical prescriptions were from fentanyl. And that was cast by the CDC in the ledger of prescription diversion and therefore attributed to med uh, diversion from medical practice. But it was illicit fentanyl almost overwhelmingly that came from Mexico and from China. It really belongs in the ledger of illicit drugs with heroin. The actual prescription overdose problem is beginning to abate, largely because supply reduction efforts against the prescription availability, changing doctor practices and the rest, have actually had some purchase and made a difference. Here we finally see past year and past month heroin use on the left from the National Household Survey, and on the right the correlation with the overdose deaths, and it's been pointed out that they don't exactly correlate in terms of scope and magnitude, but several things interest me about these slides. One is the saltations. This is an outbreak that occurs relatively quickly after 2010. Well, what happened in 2009, 2010? 
policies changed. What else happened in the background? Past year spiked up for use. Now, the magnitude of this is actually quite small on the left-hand side for both past, past month and past year use. One of the reasons is because, even though we allude to the National Household Survey as the source for self-reports regarding heroin and or monitoring the future as a source for youth use, they are simply not sufficient to the task. They do not provide an adequate portrait. They are surveys, self-reports of people in stable households. If you want to get access to the heroin-using population, you've got to go to other sources because they are involved in street life or they're institutionalized or they're involved in criminal activity and they are not readily captured in the household survey. We always find substantially more heroin use than is self-reported in the household survey. Unfortunately, the very vehicles we used to use to capture that have been deleted by this administration. They've been undermined, basically. Sources like Adam and Don have been weakened substantially, and our vision as to what's happening in the non-household survey population is being occluded. This is deeply problematic. Nonetheless, what happens here in 2010, leading to 10,500 overdose deaths from heroin alone, 29,000 deaths combined a year of Americans from the opioids, and 47, almost 48,000 deaths a year from all overdoses of drugs. That, by the way, is going to worsen most likely. These are 2014 data. What's happened in the meantime, I'm going to go consistently with my argument, look to the source. The source for heroin in the United States these days is Mexico. It has been in the past, back in the 90s, from Southwest Asia, that meant Afghan heroin. It has been until recently from South America, that meant Colombian heroin. Same time we were taking down Colombian cocaine, there were effective interventions in Colombia, and it wasn't just eradication, it was a systematic program called Plan Colombia that opened with trying to break the back of the cartels, providing security on the ground, and rolling in with alternative development crops and State Department initiatives for roads, schools, education, housing, alternative development, and plans for stabilization and enfranchisement of the population. But that could only be done when there was a strong disincentive in Colombia against both heroin and cocaine. Likewise, in Mexico, we had effective programs in the 90s, and we lost our way, I would argue. There was a striking spike in Mexican poppy cultivation and heroin production. These numbers are actually higher than it appears, 30 metric tons up to 42 metric tons, a 62% increase between 2013 and 2014 in the amount of heroin being produced from Mexico, overwhelmingly targeted at the United States to highly effective distribution networks that have distributed themselves throughout the country. That seems to me to be the best answer for why we've seen the spike in overdose deaths and use. Supply does drag with it participation in that market. So where supply has gone down, we have seen the consequences and the use go down. Where supply has been restored, we see the increases once again. And we can see this back to the Colombian problem. Why was cocaine suddenly going back up to 420 metric tons, 165? 155% increase in two years. Guess what we stopped doing in Colombia? Supporting the aerial spray program. They lost the capacity and the political will to continue to drive cocaine away from its primary markets and the narco cartels in Colombia started back right at our throats. And they're rising quickly. And one could anticipate on that basis that there will be a parallel return of cocaine as an epidemic in the United States 
with the heroin epidemic at the same time. 2014 data, we don't know what's happened in Mexico for 2015. But the data from 2014, that heroin is just now arriving. What we're seeing for overdose deaths for heroin, 10,500, is looking in the rearview mirror, the heroin availability from the past. It's already in the system that we're likely to see major increases still coming our way. And no action in Mexico to forestall this adequate to the challenge. What is the amount of heroin that we need in the United States to satisfy demand, illicit demand? It's been estimated around 18 metric tons. And 42 metric tons pure were produced in 2014 alone in Mexico. That's a substantial overproduction, which is fueling a market through distribution networks without adequate administration response, I would argue. And what looms on the horizon? Remember back in the 90s when the, Af the uh, heroin we had came from Afghanistan? What is the Afghan production a year ago of pure heroin on the global market? 600 metric tons at least. Coming our way, potentially, it could return to the United States market. We don't see a lot of it yet. It's in Canada. It's the predominant source for heroin in Canada. Can you imagine the tsunami of effects on public health for 600 metric tons of illicit heroin? to be available, and the public health burden of combining that with a prescription crisis and a returning cocaine crisis. CDC is picking up on this in this January 2016. They've made recommendations. NIDA has also come out with comparable recommendation, saying, you know what we really need to do here for our policy with regard to this? We need to reduce the supply of opioids. The need to prevent opioid deaths to reduce the supply of illicit opioids, particularly heroin and fentanyl. Are we doing that? Administration activity so far has been directed at the other end of the epidemic crisis, at treatment, at naloxone and overdose revival, at doctor prescribing with regard to people who are already trapped in the epidemic. We've got to get ahead of this with a public health and epidemiologic approach that cuts off the pathogen and cuts off the vectors of the behavioral disease moving to prevent people from coming into this circumstance in the first place rather than smoothing the dying pillow as we give them naloxone. Naloxone works and it should be readily available. It's a good public health strategy, but it's not enough. It's not enough because how many people who had an overdose returned and got a subsequent prescription of opioids from their physician? In a recent study, 91%. And 17% 17 over two years had cumulative overdose exposure yet again. You're reviving them, but they're going back out on the street and shooting up again. Heroin is not benign. It produces tolerance. Because of tolerance, people go for more and more and greater and greater doses until it has respiratory suppression impact. This is the course of a heroin, even when it's readily available and when law enforcement prohibition doesn't intervene and you're not restricting them with too little heroin, it still creates that effect and they die. And they can be brought back, but if you haven't gotten them into treatment and resolved into recovery, their process, you have not addressed them. And now some of the synthetic opiates that are showing up on the market are so incredibly powerful. There are arguments today that they are binding to the receptors so strikingly that even naloxone can't bind them out, can't pull them out, cannot interfere with the binding process. Therefore, even naloxone may be mute. By the way, there is no naloxone overdose antidote for cocaine or methamphetamine or even for marijuana. 
This is not a comprehensive strategy against drug intoxication on the part of the administration. All right, running out of time here. Let me just wrap up. What are the messages? Nearly all people who use heroin use at least one other drug. Most of them use three other drugs. Alcohol users, two times more likely to be addicted. Marijuana, three times more likely to be addicted. Cocaine, 15 times. Which of those drugs has experienced a dramatic change in the last five, six years? Marijuana. Is marijuana availability part of the solution? It may, could very well be. It's hard to know exactly what the linkage is, but greater accessibility, greater funding for cartels, greater movement of high-potency marijuana into the system is correlated with these outbreaks in both instances. We need to think about that problem. They're not just heroin users, they're polydrug users, including other opiates, hydrocodones, Ipana, Dilaudid. Prince had all the opiates he could buy, but he died. Finally, here's my wrap-up. Prescription opiates present a problem to us that seems to me to be a fundamental challenge to the notion of a legal regulated market. They are deadly, and it's the second largest drug abuse problem we face in the country behind marijuana. Legal regulated regimes coexist with black markets. They do not drive them out. In fact, they feed each other. The legal market for prescription opiates, in fact, fed and amplified the heroin market as the heroin market fed into the availability of prescriptions. This was not from doctor practice. This was diverted, and it's diverted many ways along the chain, from wholesale production, through quotas, through warehouses, through variety of reins. Under any scenario, prohibition is going to have to be part of our policy, at least to keep 21-year-olds and under away from the drugs. We've got to play some role there. Under any scenario, we must fight back against the black market. It has to be defeated, cannot be accommodated. It will kill us and our children. We need a disease model. We need to have, however, a serious epidemiologic approach to the disease model, and we are not taking it yet to prevent this from running. Um, my time is up here, but I'm basically at the end, except I will leave you with not only a question with regard to what has the administration been doing and why is it not adequate, including medication-assisted therapy, uh, the effort to provide uh, substitute opiates. I think it's problematic. But this is my favorite slide here. Uh, it's my thematic conundrum, my mystery slide. It's, it's Penelope on Ithaca. And I just like her story because of what she so famously did, which was as she's waiting for Odysseus to come home for all those 20 years, she is commanded to do a tapestry with a figure in it. And when it is complete, she must choose a suitor for her husband. And every night she does what? She unravels it. Indeed, she does. And this is what we have done with drug policy and why people say it's not effective. Because every time an administration has come in and woven a figure in the tapestry, the next has come along and unraveled it and then say, you see, nothing works. This is policy-driven. It's not inherent in the challenge. Thank you. Thank both of our speakers for coming in on time. Let's keep that going where our brief second round of five minutes each. Jeff. Thank you. So let me first say, try to clarify aspects of the disagreement that uh, David and I have. I'm certainly not arguing that prohibition, other restrictions, can't have any effect on the supply of drugs or on the equilibrium quantity of drugs consumed. I think the evidence, okay, I differ somewhat, the evidence suggests that prohibition has relatively modest impacts on the amount of use, but it certainly seems to have some impact. We're not disagreeing on that. What we're disagreeing upon is all the other effects. My claim is that 
by driving it underground, even if we are reducing the amount of use, we're increasing the danger per use, and the aggregate, the overall impact, is likely to make a lot more negative effects from use because people are consuming under circumstances of prohibition. In addition, okay, setting that point aside, whether you want to regard any change in use as a positive or a negative, prohibition has a huge number of other effects, generating violence, corruption, insurrection in other countries, quality control problems, civil rights infringements, racial profiling, and on and on. So prohibition has huge negatives, even if you are confident that policy should want to eliminate or reduce drug use. Okay? Second thing I really don't understand from uh, David's presentation is that we have to accept that we're always going to have a legal market. So as a matter of theory, a priori, few, if any, people have any incentive to deal with a black market supplier of a good, to risk getting ripped off, to not be able to sue that supplier if you get a faulty version of the product, all sorts of benefits from dealing with legal suppliers if legal suppliers are really available. Second, we have lots of evidence. After alcohol prohibition ended, virtually all of the black market suppliers went out of business. Not all. There were sort of revenuers left in the hills of West Virginia and Kentucky. Why? Because there was still some government attempt to suppress the alcohol market in the form of very high taxes. More broadly, there are billions of commodities out there that are fully legal or at least modestly regulated no differently than any other product. There are minimal, if any, black markets for any of those commodities. I just don't understand that claim um, at all. Um, what do I have? Yeah, One two minute. and a half minutes. Two and a half minutes. Okay. I think another interesting thing to think about is that forced withdrawal generates okay, people who are desperate, or at least feel very strong need, to get access okay, to the thing that they're with being withdrawn from. Literature I've read says if you can go through gradual withdrawal from opioids, you avoid most of the withdrawal effects, and it can be a relatively sort of painless process. I have no experience with withdrawal from opioids, but I have lots of experience with withdrawal from caffeine. Every five years or so, I decide I want to be caffeine-free. What do I do? I go from four cups a day to three cups a day to two cups a day over a period of a month or six weeks or something. If one day I wake up and say, gee, I could really use that cup of coffee today, I just go get it. And then I start to gradually taper off my dosage again. In a legal market, people trying to withdraw themselves without treatment necessarily from opioids could do exactly the same thing. But in a black market, if you don't know where you can get your next dose, where your supply can come from, then you feel this compulsion to always be searching for it, to take heavy doses and so on. Yet again, use in a black market is going to be much more dangerous than use in a legal market where people can naturally adjust their doses and gradually change uh, their behavior. Um, so last point I'll make about whether the revenues from taxation could possibly be enough to pay for the extra excess health burden and the excess uh, police costs and so on and so forth, okay, my position is first, libertarians actually have mixed emotions about the fact that we'll get more tax revenue from legalized drugs because I don't particularly like the government having more revenue to spend. The slightly better statement is if we legalize drugs, we could change other tax rates, keeping total revenue constant or lower, okay, and have a more rational tax system. 
But unambiguously, you save the enforcement costs from not having to arrest people, lock people up, and so on. And we believe that the public health burden goes down. The criminal justice burden goes down because people aren't committing crime in order to get drugs. People are not being jailed for producing, transporting, selling drugs. And so you don't need this revenue to cover a big increase in expenditure for public health or criminal justice burdens. Those burdens will, in fact, diminish because almost all the negatives we associate with drugs come from their prohibition st status, not from the use of those drugs, per se. Let me stop Okay, David, five minutes. Thank you. Terrific. Uh, I, I hope I get these, these points here. The, um, I'm, I'm very surprised, and I'd like to see empirical backup, because I do not believe it is the case that in Europe you have freer access to opiate prescriptions through doctors than you do in the United States. Every bit of work I have done internationally, particularly with our Western European partners, has shown that it's simply not the case. They simply do not have anywhere near our availability of prescriptions and the pharmaceutical system. And Germany won't, won't even prescribe hydrocodones. They don't, they don't have them. So I'm, I'd really like to see empirical backup that you can readily find opiates on a free market in Europe. I, I, don't, I don't think that's true through the prescriptive practice, but I could be corrected if there are data on that. Uh, there are readily uh, available examples of black markets where the commodities are, are not narcotics. Tobacco run every, to avoid taxations is notorious. Liquor, uh, certainly uh, counterfeit drugs, counterfeit products. They're, they're black markets in these things controlled by transnational organized crime. And perhaps the most egregious that confronts us is human trafficking. But labor is, yeah, labor is available, but there's human trafficking. Uh, yeah, it's because of sex is, no, it's human trafficking in activities for labor. There, there are all abundant examples of black markets that did not disappear, not just for addictive substances, but it's a particularly per pernicious black market when it is addictive substances. That's what's happening in Colorado, empirically. We can see it. There is a legal, available recreational marijuana market and the black market is thriving. Criminal organizations are moving in by leaps and bounds, taking over warehouses, killing people, exerting coercion, corruption, and control, and Colorado is now a source of smuggling of illegal marijuana to all the other states and even internationally. They busted them in southern Colorado the other day going to Cuba. You've got to stage your interventions. I learned this in Colombia. You can't simply show up with schools and roads and fish uh, uh, ponds and alternative palm uh, growth. People will do that and grow coca. The FARC shows up at the point of a gun and drives children into being coca farmers. The environmental damage is incredible. It's done with coercion and violence. They can't freely turn away from it. You've got to break their hold. And then you can come in with alternative development, legal markets with greater access. The same thing will happen with regard to heroin in the United States. It is under control of violent people who are deeply embedded, who are insulating themselves, and are corrupting the process. You cannot simply say, I'm going to give you an alternative over here, and every consumer will choose the more pure product. These are not people who have choice when they're addicted in that system. Uh, one last point, I guess, would be this. Forced withdrawal is, I think, the wrong model. The part of the prescription switch to heroin I don't buy, it's been vastly oversold, is that the heroin epidemic started off when DEA 
uh, got in the way of or impeded access to prescriptions by changing and upscheduling to hydrocodones to Schedule II or made abuse-resistant formularies, you can show that this actually happened to heroin's takeoff before the restrictions in 2011-2012 that affected the prescription supply. It was not a driving them into heroin because they were undergoing forced withdrawal. There was something else with multiple polydrug use that was going between heroin and opiates and oxycodone and dilaudid and opana, and they simply added more to that to prep the market. Methadone, terrific. Methadone is about 2% of all prescriptions with regard to opiates, and it's responsible for what percent of all overdose deaths? 30%. In 2000, Mr. Lynch is going to get mad at me, but I'm going to switch to something here. This is the toll of methadone. More than 5,000 overdose deaths in 2006 of that total of opiate overdoses were methadone. It's got to be carefully administered. It is a lethal drug. And in parts of the world that do not readily accept methadone and medication-assisted therapy prescribing, it's precisely because they lack the health infrastructure to prevent this thing from becoming a comparable drug of abuse amongst their population and an even more lethal one than the prescription opiates themselves. Buprenorphine may be a different profile. Buprenorphine may be effective at reducing overdose deaths, but it has abuse potential. That's why there was a restriction on the number of doctors and the number of patients a doctor could have. All right, I'm, I've taken my time here. I'll, I'll let this go. The uh, criminal justice, I could argue about that. Fourth withdrawal. Oh, last thing, forgive me. Portugal, it's so terrific. They did decriminalize 2000, 2001. It's a very different model than we expect to have here. Portugal has 10 million people. They had relatively low rates of use of drugs compared to the rest of Europe. And they didn't just decriminalize recreational availability. They put in motion a system that's more like our drug court system, where you got referral to a treatment or a counseling session if you were caught possessing. Possessors are not in our prison system. It's drug traffickers. 99.5% are drug traffickers in our federal prison system. What's happened in Portugal? Keep an eye on the youth. In the last years available, 2006 to 2011, Secondary school students have seen almost a doubling of their cannabis past month use, from 8.9% to 15.9%. That is the future. The impact on the overall population was relatively modest. The impact on the upcoming normatizing problem of the youth is that it produces great difficulty. I don't see the models as supporting our idea that a legalized open access market is better for us, better for the addict. That's not what you find in treatment centers. They say, please help us, don't make heroin more available when I get out. Okay, please thank our speakers. Here. Okay, we are going to open it up and take some of your questions. Uh, I have three requests. Please wait for the microphone when I call on you so, uh, so that everybody can hear your question. Uh, give your name and affiliation and please keep your questions brief so that we can get to as many people as possible. Yes, right here in the center. Wait for the microphone, please. Raise your hand. Thank you. I'm Jesse Roof. I'm over at American Action Forum. And for Dr. Myron, I was wondering if you'd any see if you had seen any data pointing to a correlation between prescription drug pricing and heroin use in your research. 
I actually haven't seen any correlation on the pricing. I wouldn't think that the pricing was crucial for the prescription drugs since a lot of it's being bought under insurance. Um, so I don't think of that as a primary factor in why people are consuming more or less opioids. I think a lot more has to do with whether doctors are prescribing and what their medical conditions are. So, no, sorry. The gentleman on the aisle. <coughs> Hi, I'm Chris Eichmann from Office of National Drug Control Policy. And first of all, I'll thank uh, both uh, uh, Dr. Myron and Dr. Murray for uh, for your very uh, good discussion. I have uh, two quick questions, uh, forgive me for that, but Dr. Myron, I was just curious, uh, you talked about the number of deaths and you, you had some, uh, you, you were looking at the numbers, whether or not, do you think that they're too high or too low? Um, and, then, um, and then for both of you, I'd, I'd like to know, how come uh, when, you, when you talk about policy perspectives that um, you don't talk anything about prevention? Uh, you, you don't, you know, the, there's there's not a very good prevention campaign national nationwide. We have a drug free community program, but there's no national message on prevention uh, that would hopefully uh, you know serve as a foundation for a demand reduction. Let me take the question that you just directed me first. I think that the number of deaths being reported for specific drugs for heroin, cocaine, methadone, all those are almost certainly overreported by exactly how much I haven't determined yet. The reason is that those come from the multiple cause of death file, and the multiple cause of death file pulls every record where any of those drugs is mentioned as any of the causes of death. So instead of attributing one cause of death to each death, the multiple cause of death file can attribute up to 20 so that it's unambiguously overcounting the number of deaths, and in particular for those substances. Okay, I'm working on trying to get an estimate of how big that is and how that would factor into understanding what the trends are. On your question about why isn't there more on prevention, my own assessment is that prevention efforts are pretty ineffective. Okay? Sometimes they seem to be counterproductive. They seem to consist more of advertising for kids that there are these quote-unquote cool things out there that they ought to try. Um, so if there were evidence that it was effective, I'd be willing to have that discussion, but I don't see the evidence. David, did you want to say something? I, I'm uh, not sure that that's an accurate answer with regard to the cause of death, that there is an effort to evaluate the primary contributor, and you will get lots of efforts to sort of rank order. In polydrug use, there's an overdose, you know, was it alcohol plus? Uh, very often, the most common driver of the heroin in conjunction will be heroin with benzodiazepines, and they do seem to be concerted together. Uh, but my impression is that uh, we're, we're not clearly systematically undercounting that I know of, uh, nor overcounting, certainly, but uh, I'm just stunned by how difficult it is to get current data out of the CDC, how lax they have been at, at, at weaving together uh, mortality reports from the respective states, and that we are always responding after the, after the fact. The fentanyl outbreak in 2007 in Chicago, we, we could not get clear information at the time that this was happening, and they've not amended the system any better, <clears throat> so it's always retrospective and very frustrating. Prevention, yes, of course. Now, question is, and prevention has been shown, I think, to be effective, certainly with regard to national media campaign advertising in certain regards. I very highly believe in it. The administration has deleted those programs, unfortunately, and I think it's a tragedy. They have a role to play. Uh, but at the same time, from my perspective, supply reduction just is prevention if you can't access it. 
If you cannot find it availability, it has a consequential effect on your ability to enter into that market. Is there a role for messaging and norms? Yes, you can look at who in American life is not succumbing at rates comparable to the most disadvantaged and learn lessons from the lives that they live. And unfortunately, it's not clear what the federal government can do about it because it involves things like neighborhoods and civic life and religiosity and family structure and SES, uh, these dimensions that the government cannot itself directly leverage. So if the federal government has one responsibility coincident with a philosophy of government that it shouldn't be overweening in every area of our lives, it seems to me that it should go after supply appropriately. The state of Iowa can have prevention messages, can build their school system, but it takes the United States to put a cutter down there in Central America. So that, that is, it seems to me, be a great question. If we had more effective tools on prevention where we could simply push that button and the kids would be inoculated, I would use it. I don't see it yet, but it can help. Family, 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 and even then, they lose some. They're vulnerable. Even Utah, and I've lived in Utah. Okay. Sir, in the, in the back, blue shirt. Hi there, I'm Joe Thorogood from University College London. My PhD is on um, opioid trades, and um, I wanted to thank both presenters for really interesting talks. My question is kind of coming from the UK's perspective and European perspective, which you both both touched on. Um, before I came to the US, I had never seen an advert which was ask your doctor about this drug, um, specifically for opioids and things. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to add was that we do have heroin in hospitals in the UK. We just call it to something different, very strictly regulated drug dimorphine. So I guess my question is, do you see, uh, for both panellists, um, a place for reducing the um, influence of Big Pharma through such advertising initiatives, you know, these Ask Your Doctor About campaigns, and maybe a role for really strictly regulated medical heroin like we have in the UK? Thank you. I get to open? Thank you. Whichever. Uh, that, <laughs> well said. Thank you. Uh, quite concur. The UK did go through a horrendous episode, as you recall, from the 70s and 80s when it had around you know, a quadrupling of heroin addicts as a function of greater access and uh, you know, the acceptability of heroin. Uh, and it seemed to pull back from that because of this quadrupling of, of overdose and so forth and, and usage. And Baltimore went through something very similar under Kurt Schmoke, which sort of gave the lesson that you have to be careful about doing this. Your question was basically... Can we give out dimorphone, you call it, diacetylmorphine? You mean that's heroin. So it's the substitution of heroin as a treatment for heroin. This has been proposed. It is found in the Naomi Project in Canada and Vancouver. And it is found in uh, 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 Amsterdam, uh, visited such facilities. And they, by the way, all, each of them has a sign over the door as you come in, absolutely no smoking. They will not tolerate. These are laws in Vancouver that you cannot smoke inside a building. So if they don't want to have it, they prohibit it. Nonetheless, the problems are multiple. You may be eroding your prevention messages by providing heroin to heroin addicts. You may be limiting their capacity to achieve recovery because you're sustaining them in a government relationship. Is this a citizen dependent on the government for their daily multiply administered dose? Can they go out at night? They withhold the heroin as a means of sanctioning these people. That seems to me to be incompatible with American notions of liberty or the idea of citizenship as agency. Nonetheless, it is done. Safe injection facilities, 
heroin provision for heroin treatment seem to me to be acquiescing in, we're not trying to recover these people, we've written them off, and we are sustaining them as long as we keep them quiet and buried in the back somewhere so that they don't cause problems as opposed to trying to get them into recovery. And if we can use prevention and such and get people into treatment, there are pathways to recovery. I'm not diminishing those things. I'm just saying they're not adequate in the absence of a supply reduction initiative that has to be part of that. I do not think that providing heroin to heroin addicts is a solution to our problem, it seems to me, far too brave, too worldish. Though I understand it's empirically validated because it meets the primary criterion for treatment evaluation, which is retention and treatment. And sure enough, people come back when you give them heroin. So by retention and treatment, it works. I, the other measures of human acceptability, activity, and self-harm and such seems to me to be problematic. Okay. Do you want to say something? Yes. Um, so I completely agree with David that having people have to jump through hoops to go to certain locations to only accept the dosages and the amounts of heroin that the government is willing to give them and to impose various other restrictions on your lifestyle as a condition of giving you heroin is utterly un-American, an infringement on liberty, and the right response is to let people buy, sell legal, fully legal heroin. It's not to restrict it even more by a prohibition. Now, strictly as a matter of would providing legal heroin via these clinics be better than not doing it all, given the current policy? Yes, because some people would then be able to get heroin in a way which was safer than what they're currently doing. On your question about advertising, I absolutely think any pharmaceutical company should be able to advertise as much or as little as it wants, because that's one way of letting people get information, which is how they find out about which drugs are more and less dangerous, and so on. Yes, ma'am. On, ready to go. Cindy Hoffman, I'm a former orthopedic surgery and neurosurgery medical practice executive and now have my own consulting company. Um, and it's my understanding, and I'm going to go on the clinical side of healthcare rather than staying on my administrative side for just a minute. If anybody in the audience thinks I'm wrong, correct me. Keep um, the microphone. Okay. Right it's my understanding through my readings that opioid use actually increases the sensation of pain in the body and it also actually restructures or ha has a capability to restructure the brain. I, and, and I also understand that about, and I believe the, the number is correct, about 6% of the people who receive opioid prescriptions are, have a genetic predisposition for addiction. So that I'm throwing some clinical aspects into what you guys are saying, and, and it would have been nice to have had a clinical person here talking as well. Thank you. I've got, yeah, we've just quickly, absolutely, I think there are lots of detrimental dimensions to pr prolonged heroin administration. It does rewire the brain, and there are consequences hormonally, uh, testosterone and so forth. There is a potential for immunosuppression, certainly not just heroin. We're talking about legal markets. We've got to look at cocaine, which is unfortunately implicated in reducing the capacity of the body to resist uh, HIV AIDS. Uh, you get immunosuppression, you get a variety of cascades of problems for long-term use, respiratory suppression being the most urgent and immediate. It's not a particularly healthy thing to be doing, and apparently it does potentiate pain, uh, as I've under, uh, I believe I've read that comparably. Uh, Direct-to-consumer advertising is highly problematic. We have been sanctioned by the United Nations for the fact that we have this in the United States. It, it should not be there. I'm sorry, you had another sort of clinical question. What was the, th the other dimension it was about? Oh, yeah, well, then, unfortunately, now we're discovering with the new era, 
Yeah, uh, they're, they're, well, the single nucleotide polymorphism that we find in, uh, certainly with regard to marijuana, has been recently published. And this is a phenomenal that uh, the percentage of the population is highly vulnerable to catastrophic risk. They said the word catastrophic risk for schizophrenia and psychosis if they have this polymorphism. Single nucleotide polymorphism is a genetic predisposition. And they apparently are quite widespread in the population. And that's a problem we're doing when we make our decisions for the rational actor for the society and how the net cost, net benefit, let's all be benthamites. We've got a vulnerable population out there for whom this is Russian roulette with all the chambers loaded. And I don't think our responsible public health policy can ignore that. We wouldn't do it with Zika. We wouldn't do it with Ebola. And we don't do it with heroin. Okay, we've got about time for two more questions. Yes, sir, over there. Hi, my name is Scott Everts, and I'm the former director of the White House Office of National AIDS Policy under President Bush. Um, welcome, Dr. Murray. Um, I'm also a polysubstance drug addict in recovery. When I was at the White House, I sat on the Domestic Policy Council with uh, the drug czar, or the director of the Office of National Control, Drug Control Policy, and I was a pretty fierce advocate for needle exchange, um, which did not serve me well among the president's base and got me in frequent trouble, but I thought it was the best public health intervention to pre prevent HIV. You've kind of answered my question, Dr. Murray, if your position has changed on um, needle exchange. You mentioned Vancouver as well, and it's the experience of the folks in Vancouver that heroin use goes down when you have um, safe injecting facilities. One of the theories is that you reduce the kind of the allure and the appeal of uh, the black market and of the street activity, and they have seen a, a direct result, or the, the theory is that heroin use goes down. So my question is, have you, Dr. Murray, changed your position at all, given the fact that it is proven that um, people using um, clean needles are not uh, at risk for HIV AIDS the way those that aren't are, and, um, and just kind of your opinion on what I said, and, and that is the, the theory that it reduces um, uh, the drug use or heroin injection in, in that city. Thank yeah, you very much. Take the second one uh, first. The, the idea that safe injection facilities reduce overall drug use, including heroin use, I, I've not seen it demonstrated. I've seen it argued. What happened in my experience of visiting these places is that what people do is they leave the facility and continue to inject in the black market on the street and overdose there. They say, we have no overdose deaths in all our history of running. The only, yeah, no, none in the facility. But how many people did you lose? Well, we, we did lose a few. And when they refer them to treatment, they call, we, we actually get them, no, they don't. They refer them to detox. And I've not seen any convincing demonstration that people who are present and using actually get a reduction in HIV AIDS exposure and or reduce the uh, likelihood that youth will enter into the system. I don't know the impact on your prevention messages for those who look on. I worry that it is sustaining. And if they are part of a pathogenic circumstance, you're continuing the use and presence of the disease in the community if you're continuing to enable the continued drug injection. I've not seen a balanced calculation as to whether they actually produce a net benefit. It has been so claimed. With regard to needles, 
That's a very long discussion, which I'd be happy to entertain at some point. I definitely accept the notion of needles as part of a therapeutic package where you can intervene in such a way as to try to stabilize with medication-assisted therapy and the provision of clean syringes if it is part of a package that leads to treatment, recovery, and abstinence. If it's used that way, it strikes me as being a potential utility. The, my position with regard to needles as we understand it now is that the case has not been proven. The case is not yet made that simply providing clean needles actually leverages a change in behavior that's requisite to reduce the risk. What you get is hepatitis and HIV AIDS transmission due to high risk behaviors, one of which is the continued use of dirty needles. However, in the presence of clean needles, if you have not leveraged a change in the high-risk behavior, you have not availed anything other than distributing a lot of needles that lead to a lot of problematic public health circumstances. Unless you've changed the high-risk behavior of the addict, including the frequency with which they inject, how many drugs they are actually using, the wound sepsis and the problems that accompany the immunosuppression dimension of the continued addiction and the continued injection that you've enabled. It's not clear to me that they actually produce that net benefit, particularly when drug users engage in high-risk sex acts that expose them to the disease at least as much as does the injection equipment being contaminated. On balance, I've not seen the argument made that it's effective at a public health level, though it can be, it seems to me, sustained as part of a treatment package that leads towards maintenance into eventually stabilization, eventually into recovery. Okay, Jeff, you had a comment? Yeah, so in response to your question, I think the evidence is quite consistent across various cities and locations that have adopted needle exchange, that they do seem to see reduced rates of HIV infection, reduced overdoses from heroin, and it's not just of the people who OD within their facilities, it's of the overdose rates in the cities or towns or wherever where these things takes place. If there is continued use of dirty needles by some people who are participating in the needle exchanges or in the injecting rooms or whatever, it's because they don't get sufficient access, in my view, to legal heroin. Legalization would mean anyone who wanted to purchase heroin, consume it by injection, would get a disposable syringe packaged with the heroin in a drugstore. There's never any reason to share a dirty needle. So I think that the evidence actually supports your perspective quite strongly. Okay, one more question right here. Hi, uh, Kyle O'Donnell. I'm an economics uh, lecturer at James Madison University. Uh, maybe it's just me. I misread the graphs before, uh, Dr. Murray. But when you had the two graphs up, uh, you had one showing the overdose deaths for cocaine over time, and then you showed uh, the, the efforts to eradicate coca in Colombia. And it seemed that the biggest spikes in overdose deaths were occurring at the same time as the biggest spikes in the aerial eradication efforts. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could maybe explain why that appears to be the oh, case. Yeah, no, good point. I mean, it, because it, it is, overdose deaths are basically a lagging indicator when you go that far upstream into source country. So 2001, we began to implement Plan Columbia, which began with aerial spray. It was very effective, ineffectively done for a year. Around 2002, when President Uribe comes in, they amplify and intensify aerial spray. At that point, you've got 170,000 hectares all over Colombia growing coca, which is all coming to the United States. And it takes about two years, 18 months to two years, before that cocaine actually arrives on the streets of Chicago and then produces an overdose death. Around 2006, successive years of intensified spray, 
hollowed out and reduced the productivity of those fields, and we began to see a decline in the production. Now, from 2001 on, production was gradually going down, but there was a lot of cocaine in the system that was still coming to the United States and still causing overdose deaths. So by 2006 is the highest year for overdose deaths in the United States, and it is on the decline. And when we hit a threshold where there was simply not sufficient cocaine to fill the pipeline that takes two years to get to Chicago, eventually the overdose deaths caught up by 2012. They drop when we're down to 165 metric tons of cocaine being produced the overdose deaths finally began to drop insufficiently that we can see this is a declination. Unfortunately, as I say, it's coming back, and it's coming back very quickly because we've seen this 155% spike back up to 420 metric tons, and overdose deaths are already starting to show up, and I suspect that they will climb yet again. But you're, you're right. There's a lagging relationship between these. I'm afraid we have run out of time, but would you please thank both of our debaters for a good exchange.